Hi, I'm Steffi Nelson. I am a writer and editor in Los Angeles, and I am the editor of the new essay collection, Slouching Towards Los Angeles, Living and Writing by Joan Didion's Light, out now on Rare Bird Books. I am sitting here with Stacy Stukin, my friend and fellow culture journalist. So Stacy is a contributor to Slouching Towards Los Angeles, and for her essay, Brentwood Notebook, she took on her home turf of Brentwood. Her piece is a combination of memoir and reported history that goes into some pretty unexpected places from the former home of the Reagans to the Manson trial. So what was the impetus to write this piece for this book? Well, first, hello, Steffi. <laughs> um, it's nice to be here. Well, you had been talking about this project for a long time, and it had always intrigued me. And when we finally got the green light and you said go, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I, I had this vague idea that growing up in Brentwood and being a native of California and growing up in Los Angeles at a certain time when Didion was living there and writing about that neighborhood or the neighborhoods that I knew and the places I knew and the things happening in our culture that were impacting me as well. I just started going and this thing came out that without really even thinking about it, I touched on topics that she had also written about, which led me to understand even more fully how she has this incredible ability of osmosis, how she just kind of absorbs what's happening in the culture and then puts it out there in a way that resonates so um, intensely with, you know, Somebody like me who, um, like her, you know, wanted to be and became a writer. Yeah, so you mentioned um, that, that there was overlap in, in some of your subject matter. Um, and it's really fascinating. Di so Didion wrote a piece about Nancy Reagan, and she also wrote about the Manson trial. And... And both of these stories have direct connections to you and your life in Brentwood. So do you want to just share a little bit about that? Sure. So I grew up in um, Mandeville Canyon, um, and which was pretty close to the Pacific Palisades, which was where the Reagans were living. Um, they later came back and moved to Bel Air. But during that time, before he became president, um, they lived on this house. Um, it was called the Top of Capri, or that's what we would call it. And I think it was technically on, I can't remember the name of the street now. Sorry about that. But it was this house that was built by General Electric. It was this mid-century modern um, spread that had a pool with a view 
of, you know, you could see from downtown to Malibu. It had this huge um, panoramic view. It also was outfitted with every modern convenience. And I I knew the house was a kind of a mid-century modern house, but I didn't really know the extent of it till I started researching this. I also knew that there was a dirt road next to the house um, with kind of this plateau where we would go to party, basically. And so in the piece, I kind of talk about um, Nancy's, you know, love for her electronic servants and um, um, because, you know, her souffles, God forbid, you know, they could go down the garbage disposal and um, be timed perfectly and, and, and such. And then, you know, kind of the irony of her just say no to drugs campaign when we were doing a lot of drugs and we were doing them at the Reagan house or adjacent to. So could you actually see the house? Yeah, you could actually see it. I mean, during at night it was harder. And by the time that we were able to go up there or the time that we did go up there, it was on the market. I figured this out by, all by reconstructing dates, right? So um, they had moved to Washington for, for him to become president. And so it was empty. And so that's how we got access. And then there was a certain point where all of a sudden there was security up there and we no longer had access. So they, they had... So they it was had, a fleeting moment. It was a fleeting moment and they had uh, caught on to our antics. That seems to be like a real theme of, I don't know, youth of the 70s and 80s, like hanging out near abandoned houses. I feel like everything is so much more secure now. Like, I don't know. I just think of my own childhood and I feel like I had a lot more freedom to roam. Yeah. I mean, I, I call it my feral youth. I mean, we were really um, unsupervised. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Um, and I look at my friend's who are parents now and the way that they interact with their children and the way my parents interacted with me and it was it's two different two different animals really quite different but yet you went to the Westlake School for Girls Mm -hmm. which must have been a pretty structured environment yeah it was I mean it was um for those who may not know, it, it's a private girls' school in Holmby Hills. Um, it was kind of this bucolic campus. Um, the architects happened to be the same architects who did uh, the Playboy Mansion. So it had this very kind of old world, old LA, you know, Mediterranean, beautiful grounds. And it was very rigorous academically. And during the week, we had a lot of homework. However, on the weekends, I was MIA. So it was kind of um, a combination of real structure and rigor and simultaneously, you know, a lot of freedom. So do you want to talk about the connection that your school, the Westlake School for Girls, has to the Manson trial? 
Sure. Um, I could read these couple paragraphs, or would you prefer me Sure, to... go ahead. You know what? Maybe I'll just tell you. So the connection to the Tate trial goes this way. Um, there was a sleep out on the Westlake campus in 1970, and there was a graduate student there supervising the students. And at one point in the middle of the night, he heard this screaming, like, God, no. Oh, God, no. And he went driving around the neighborhood, and he couldn't find anything. He called the cops. And it turns out, so they say, I mean, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories now and such. But in the um, in the book, Helter Skelter, right at the beginning, they discuss this incident of this um, Mr. Ireland having heard this um, as being valid because of the way that it's kind of this ominous proviso. They say, you know, the way sounds, you know, the canyons play with sounds or the way the canyons distort sounds. And it's true. If you looked, if you stood in the middle of the campus, you could look up and see Cielo Drive. So, you know, so there was this connection, and I learned it pretty quickly. Um, I, you know, there was scuttlebutt at school. Somebody was talking about it, and my parents had a copy of Helter Skelter, and there it was on page four, the Westlake School for Girls. <laughs> it's kind of funny to think, think about that in light of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. You know, which rewrites that story as a, as a fairy tale. Yeah. Is that, I mean, was when you saw, did you see it? I did see it. Um, I thought that, I, I mean, I loved the movie. I thought it was great. I also loved it just to see L.A. at, at that time and the way that I love to watch the Rockford Files, that I feel like those are some of the best views of L.A., you know. Um, and in terms of the, you know, the Tate murder, I mean, I think... I was I was young, right, when that happened. This was before my time at Westlake. But, you know, reading about it and reading what Didion wrote about it, you know, a lot of people say that was the end of the 60s, and it was kind of the end of this utopian, you know, counterculture that was changing the world, the revolution. Um, and I think it kind of ushered in some really dark times in L.A. And... Um, and in the country, especially with Reagan, honestly, um, and the AIDS epidemic and, and all those things that were to come, the Iran-Contra affair. Um, so it not having happened is a really nice fairy tale that would maybe even change the whole course of history, you know. But then again, where else could it have happened except in <laughs> L.A., right? Yeah, you know, it's um, in a way it is such a sordid, you know, only in L.A. kind of story to me, at least. Well, absolutely, because it was sort of slightly inspired by someone's thwarted attempt to become a star, mm -hmm. a rock star, you know. Um, it's like, if I can't be a rock star, I'll just command this 
strange movie ranch and these lost children. Um, but Brentwood has yet another grisly murder. I know. Connected to I know it. the O.J. Simpson murder, and um, yeah, to me that you know, if people say the '60s or the the Manson murder, you know. Um, ended the the 60s I'd say OJ just ended my um any kind of connection I had with Brentwood and I think it also it's when it changed I think it changed you know the economy was changing too there were a lot of other things going on socioeconomically but the um murder just ruined the neighborhood <laughs> you know there goes the neighborhood there goes the neighborhood I mean it was always you know this place um it was kind of it, it was such a small town it really was and when I told people when I would tell people when I was younger you know where do you live Brentwood they would say where's that and they didn't you know it wasn't on people's radar and I'd have to explain it's between you know Westwood and Santa Monica um, now, when I tell people I'm from Brentwood, I, I, I tend not to because it has such a bad connotation in my estimation. Why is that? Uh, you know, like <laughs> so many things in our city, the disparity between, I mean, it was always an affluent area. Um, but when my parents bought a house there, you know, they, they were a young family. They could do that. That could never happen now. It's now very, um, you know, they've torn down all the old, beautiful houses and have built these, which is happening all over the city. But it's particularly sad to me because there are so many, whether it be, you know, mid-century or um, Spanish colonial revival or Tudor. I mean, it just had all all those amazing L.A. Uh, styles are, you know, the panoply of styles that we have that is to me so interesting and holds our history and it just gets knocked down. Yeah. I mean, I thought, hadn't we learned a lesson from Joni Mitchell, paved paradise yeah. and put up a parking lot? Yeah. Um, yeah. It seems, and it does seem like Brentwood is a place where that's really happening. Like it went from being sort of an upper middle class family um, community to, as you say in your essay, you know, a place where there are big, tall hedges and McMansions. Yeah. I mean, I rarely get there, so I don't. Nor do I. And it's and when I do, it's almost like um, I don't recognize it. I mean, there's certain things like there's certain things like the Brentwood Country Mart still looks physically the same, but the soul of it isn't there. Like it didn't have like the there was a really mean lady in the candy store, and anybody <laughs> who grew up in Brentwood, you'd say, "What? Remember that lady?" And everybody knew her. She's terrible. <laughs> but we all went in there and had to deal with her. <laughs> you know, things like that just aren't... I mean, I'm sure people who live there have their own experience with it and, you know, love it. And they've certainly had to make a big investment to to live there. But it's not... 
it's not my it's not my people anymore mm-hmm so you don't really have any connection to it not anymore no no, no. none of your school old school friends still live there Maybe some. Yeah, maybe some. Well, while we're talking about school friends, um, the other strong Didion connection that um, you talk about in your essay is the fact that Quintana, Joan Didion, and John Gregory Dunn's daughter was a classmate of yours. Yeah, she was two years younger, but she was... Um, she did go to the school. We were for, we were in the same social circle. I did know Quintana. In fact, when she was she was a photo editor at El Decor at one point when I was writing for them, and um, so she and I corresponded then. And you know, we 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 have a lot of friends in common. Or um, so yes, she was a student at the Westlake School for Girls, as were many other children of famous people um but it was you know we wore uniforms it was very and there was our teachers were feminist there was like a it was really actually kind of a great place for a young woman I think to get an education and uh subsequently I'm a real proponent of single sex education especially I think at that age I think that it's probably a good thing I mean I don't have children so people may beg to differ but for me it was a great experience that's interesting I mean you know our our definitely fewer distractions fewer distractions <laughs> and there were some really I mean, we read, you know, the existentialists. We, I read Kafka, the hungry hunger artist. We read um, all the president's men in government class. We and, you know, we read Joan Didion. Um, you know, we read excerpts from the White Album. We, and I was just rereading the White Album essay last night, and again, it was like. It resonated so much. I mean, she talks about Melrose. She talks about the door. She talks about, um, I mean, so many things from my, my, just the gestalt of growing up in Los Angeles, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting the way that you've woven her into your piece. I think because, you know, you're one of the, you only mention, you only quote her in one paragraph, but yet, it, yeah, she sort of like permeates the piece. It's very interesting. Yeah. I don't, it was, it was almost like a, um, normally when I write, I know what I'm going to write. In this case, I had, and I think I mentioned this earlier, I had no idea. I just, I just um, knew I wanted to hit on some points. And using her structure of just going one, two, three, you know, kind mm-hmm. of just creating these 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 sections was kind of liberating. But then I was looking, you know, then you look at her work, you know, some of these some of the essays she wrote in the White Album she worked on for ten years. Like who gets that luxury? You know, I think I wrote this in a week. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Yeah. So I'm wondering if you think that she influenced having sort of permeated your experience, if that inspired you to become a writer, because you say in this essay that you always knew that you wanted to be a writer, even when there was a teacher who didn't seem to believe you had it in you, you you had your own conviction. Yeah. Um, and that was an AP English class as well, which was which was kind of astounding. What Steffi is referring to is I had this teacher who literally failed me on every paper I wrote. Um, but I persisted. And I think it was because of female artists I was exposed to. I also, you know, I was thinking, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor became the first Supreme Court justice when I was a junior in, in high school, I think. Um, I feel like, yeah, she was definitely a role model. And as I got older and more into the writing world, she was even more of a role model because um, she was from California. And when I started writing for, you know, New York publications, and there was such this Ivy League, New York-centric thing, and I, you know, here I was from L.A., and I went to UCLA, and then I went to USC to get a master's, and there was Joan Didion. She went to Berkeley, you know. She was a, she was a California woman, and that was, um, you know, certainly, you know, I looked up to that. I was like, oh, well, it could happen. People, anyway, but that's a whole other conversation. What? <laughs> well, just that whole New York, Los Angeles perceived rivalry and how so many times New Yorkers, I think, have this misconception of what we're doing out here. And having lived in both places, um, like Joan Didion, but obviously not as glamorous or, you know, accomplished as she, you know, they're very different and you cannot compare them. And I think that that's the big mistake that people make. Um, I don't know. What do you think? You're, you're, you're from New York. How, how do you? I mean, Obviously, I do think that a lot of the comparisons are ridiculous. And, you know, there's that kind of long running joke about the New York Times and their coverage of Los Angeles and, you know, discovering these neighborhoods and saying, you know, every year or two they come out with an article, Los Angeles isn't only strip malls. And yeah. it's like, uh, really? Like, you pitched that to an editor and they said, yeah, let's let's go with that. That's a that's a fresh story. Um, so it it is there is definitely a perception of Los Angeles and a reality of Los Angeles that are very divergent. Um, New York being the media or the publishing rather mm -hmm. capital of the country, I can see why it would consider itself superior, you know, back in maybe the 70s and 80s when 
newspapers were. Yeah. I mean, newspapers have obviously been important for quite some time, but, you know, at a time when New York had like five newspapers or yeah. something. We had two or three, or maybe four. But the L.A. Times went on this sort of long decline and then yeah. came back up. Um, but I think, do you think that, I mean, maybe, you know, the fact that Didion and Dunn were here in L.A., maybe, you know, maybe they gave L.A. a literary credit of that time. I mean, certainly. They absolutely it, did. Yeah, but I mean, certainly we had, you know, John Fonte and you know, Raymond Chandler and all these other great writers writing about L.A., but yeah. but I think from the New York kind of literary journalism world, they, I guess we have to thank them for letting people take us seriously in New York. <laughs> well, they definitely did give L.A. some, some literary cred, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Joan Didion was... I mean, that that is sort of when I really try to think about what did she represent. She was unapologetically intellectual, and yet she was also glamorous. And there aren't too many figures. I mean, Susan Sontag comes to mind. Mm -hmm. But she made it glamorous to be really smart and I, I just feel like she is a unique a unique figure who made writing and intelligence very glamorous at a time when that was not mm -hmm. the prevailing idea of glamour nor was it the prevailing idea of LA glamour and so it was this kind of unexpected take on it and set against the backdrop of California, set against the backdrop of this Hollywood glamour and this natural splendor, it was just this sort of irresistible package. And also the way she actually writes about the landscape. I mean, you and I have spoke about this before. I mean, there's something so, to me, so um, not only riveting, but so right the way she talks about the smells, you know, the jasmine, the gardenia, the orange blossoms, the waxy leaves of the orange groves, um, you know, the, I mean, her whole thing, you know, El Los Angeles Notebook on the Santa Anas. I mean, it's just this scientific breaking it down that also has this, like, psychological subtext. It's just... Um, kind of, you know, that's remarkable. The more I look back at it and start, you know, have, as having reread it more and more, it's just that 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 is very striking to me as well. And I think that's a a look into LA, and it's not celebrities, it's not architecture, it's just kind of the landscape, and even. Um, you know, when she did that big piece on um, Lakewood for The New Yorker, like, you know, the way she got into the history of Lakewood. And I think that inspired me in my piece to kind of look 
back a little further into California history and to, you know, kind of pay homage to the Tongva, to the, you know, the original inhabitants of these lands that, you know, we destroy and then there's rebirth and then we rebuild and then fire burns it and then the floods take it away, but then it regrows and it just, um, there's just this kind of legacy that she's kind of able to um, continually make us remember. Yeah, I mean, one of her great themes is the mythology of California and the the actual the act of mythologizing and what is what is truth and what is fiction but in analyzing that she creates her own new mythology you know this sort of this kind of knowing this knowing voice that is still swept swept up in in the romance and the beauty despite herself yeah in a way and the peril though i just feel like there's always like there's this mm. this undercurrent of like um something's going to go wrong yes or, you know especially if she's writing about crime or or even talking these little things that she'll interject about herself. And I and when you asked me why I became a writer, I mean that's also why cuz I'm just like anxious and you know, feeling peril all the time. And so it's a way for me to as she has said, as many writers have said, to like figure stuff out. You know, that you know, feeling a little uncomfortable, not really um, connecting, I can kind of connect by sitting down and and writing and that's why I became a journalist too because I wanted to be in and and looking at work you know her work all the president's men I mean I know that sounds lofty but like this idea that you can be in the mix but it doesn't have to be about you mm-hmm. and that's a very appealing dynamic for me but that has changed with journalism but that's yeah Mm. Yeah, I mean, part of her appeal just comes by virtue of the time that she was, you know, working actively as a journalist. It was a it was a great time mm-hmm. to be a journalist, mm-hmm. and we do have, you know, we can we can do it, and I I do think that. You know, I was when thinking about putting this collection together and how enthusiastically people responded, I I kind of thought later when looking at it as a whole, um, it's almost as if I was letting everyone, you know, become their own inner new journalist. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you could just write whatever you wanted. It had to have some connection to Joan Didion, but it was really about you were in the story in whatever way made sense to you. And those kinds of, I mean, it was not written for a news, I mean, it's incredible to think that she was writing some of the things that she did for the Saturday Evening Post. Mm -hmm. 
but it was still this this chance to be published just for your you know just able to express your own weird thoughts yeah which is such a luxury right yeah yeah and that's really the kind of the tragedy of of journalism and and maybe writers (laughs) and what's what's happening with the internet and our our profession you know all we want to do is is right and and do what we do well and we're willing to work really hard Mm -hmm. and so so many journalists can't even get paid at all no yeah it's really I mean and that's one of the things that I wanted to ask you Steffi is that (laughs) You know, you talked about in your introduction that it's almost like there's nothing else any of us can do. Like, you know, that we're, we're, you know, and, but why, why, why do we persist? Why do we keep doing it? From the, from the contributors that you, you know, worked with, was there? I mean, there are plenty of, of contributors are, successful working journalists you know but why do we do it I think we just we we love stories we our minds are trained to recognize like Joan Didion stories that will have long-term impact on the culture and the world and we want to document the world changing as we see it. Things, yeah. the, these cultural <clears throat> shifts, we recognize them. And they're, they happen incrementally, and it can, you can just get a sense. I mean, at least that's for me. Mm-hmm. I don't think everyone has necessarily that same motivation, but I think you probably do. No, I do. I also think it's a great excuse to be nosy. You can ask anyone anything. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. No. I also, you know, when I think about the education that I've gotten yes. from being a journalist. Yeah. Well, that's one. Of th- that's that's it, also one of the reasons I think some journalists are willing to, to do it for so little money because it really, it does pay you back in mm-hmm. in other ways. But that doesn't mean that the work has no value. So there is a confusion there. We're like, well, I feel lucky to be doing this, but being lucky doesn't mean that you should do it for free. No. And that it's really a shame because there are so many stories that still need to be told and details that need to be kind of teased out. And, um, you know, we should all have the luck to, you know, have great careers and not luck, but you know the perseverance and the culture should have the curiosity yeah to to hear about these stories you know people it's amazing to think of the instagram influencers who have millions and millions of followers just because of some kind of outfit they put on yeah (laughs) you know yes or a restaurant that they 
went to go to get avocado toast at yeah i mean in fact i was asked i write about you know food and chefs and things like that sometimes and i was asked to come into a restaurant and i and i said okay i thought why you know i'll go check it out i was curious about it it was in a space i wanted to see and then i get an email back saying well um, we really like your Instagram, but if you'd, we'll let, basically we'll let you come into the restaurant if you post an image. And I just responded back. I said, you know, maybe this isn't the right, maybe, maybe I'm not the right person to come to dinner. You know, I, uh, I just didn't want that pressure. It's not worth it. It's just not my way of working. I, I don't want to be beholden. You know, I mean, th- there's all kinds of shenanigans that go on, for sure. And I, per- I am I, are we totally off topic right now? <laughs> I'm just trying to have some fun. We're just, we're just chatting, chat, casually chatting in front of microphones. But I did want to talk about, have you read that Georgia O'Keeffe essay recently? I've read it in the last six months. But you'll have to refresh well, my memory. It was I read it last night, and you know she basically the kind of theme is there's there's a few things going. This is a Joan Didion essay, in case some listeners don't know, um, in the White Album about Georgia O'Keeffe. I think there's a section all about women. Yes, um, and she's she's at the. Um, Art Institute of Chicago with Quintana, and they're looking at a painting, and Quintana comes up to her and said, says something like, who is that? I want to know her, you know, that she was so taken by the work that she wanted to know the person. And so in typical Didion fashion, she kind of riffs about, you know, style is character, and, you know, basically kind of tying... O'Keeffe's style um, to her character as a person, which in this case um, is, you know, really interesting because she goes into to talk about what a strong woman O'Keeffe is Mm -hmm. and how she showed those men who didn't understand how she was looking at flowers and why she was painting flowers. And... um, and that she had the strength. Oh God, she called it something like. Um, it, it was just really. She she said she. Oh, I can't remember. I wrote it down. Do you remember how she? No, I don't. But I have seen that painting in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. Have you have you seen it? It's it's her cloud piece that's above a double staircase so it it is at the top of this staircase mm-hmm. and on you know you can go up either side and it's i don't know 40 feet wide or something like it's enormous and it is it's really spectacular to behold that in that setting it's really unusual it's like in a you know, basically an entranceway, hallway space, but a very grand staircase. Yeah, no, I've never, I've never seen that piece. 
Um, but I was just so struck by, you know, Diddy and herself is like obviously a very strong voice. Um, but this was really like, there was like this visceral kind of um, resonance with O'Keefe's strength that I found mm. that I don't think I had ever read in any of her other work. There was something really um, just badass that she was vibing off. I mean, sorry to, you know, use, you know, colloquialisms like that. Did I malaprop? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was so, it was, because I was also reading something else where she was talking about her own characters in her fiction, and she says, you know, they seem, they seem really kind of vulnerable, she said, but they're really actually brittle in their survival. They're, sur you know, they're survivors. And I it just, it's like this balance between kind of, um, seeming one way but really underneath you're just solid as a rock yeah I mean as far as Georgia O'Keeffe goes she did go to New Mexico to live on her own you know she had left her husband Alfred Stieglitz behind and was living mm -hmm. on a ranch so she could just paint the sky and the skulls the cow skulls that she found. So she definitely, that was part of her persona, but yeah, it's, it is, it is definitely in contrast to her paintings of flowers. I don't know. She's, she's incredible. I mean, technically she's so amazing and I'm a fan yeah no me too me too I if, and I would and though she aged so gracefully I want all those outfits she wears <laughs> and her and the home in Abiquiu and all of that see we need people like that for young women who are trying to find their voices and discover themselves and we have to kind of bow down to people like her and Didion and that. Yeah, uh, the elders. Yeah, that give us the path forward. Absolutely. And it's, I think it's really hard for young people today because they don't know what they're not learning about. You know, they just know what's in front of them. They know what's on the screen and in a sense, you know, sort of like when we were growing up and you had to really track something down that resonated with you because we didn't have the Internet in the early, early days. Um, I think kids are going to have to start doing that again. I mean, yeah. once you find out about that person, yeah, you can Google them or whatever, but you do have to forge your own path because you're just fed a steady diet of pop culture and commercial culture. You know, girls listen to Taylor Swift and they, they think it's feminist music or something. Yeah. Ha! Ha! <laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not to be too snobby about it. (laughs) Um, I'd like to talk about your essay. Sure. I'm happy to talk about it. Well, when you first read the um, what what is slouching is it, towards Bethlehem, right? But the the first essay, the, the some gold, dreamers of the golden yeah, dream, some dreamers of the golden dream, which is so like noir and such a great crime thing. What was it that? What did it tell you about California that you didn't know? Well, it's funny because, you know, when you you brought up Raymond Chandler. And John Fonte, very dark depictions of Los Angeles, as is this essay. But as I say in my essay, in response to that piece, I did not, like, I was reading between the lines. I was really picking up on this energy of the yearning and the desire and the striving and the golden dreams that everyone who makes that crossing brings with them, whether or not they're coming on a covered wagon or flying on an airplane like I did. It's you are going to live out some kind of a fantasy And you are staking your own claim. And I, it's funny, I drove up the coast this summer with my mother, took a a road trip up to San Francisco, and I hadn't done that in a little while. And when you drive along that coast, you can still feel this sense of unlimited possibilities because it's just... It's like a raw coastline. It's just the ocean and the and the sun and rolling land and we don't have we're not we're not allowed to develop it, which is the beauty of it, but you can still feel that it's this land of of uh, you know, an undiscovered land of possibility. So that was really what I that was really what I took away from her essay, even though it was much more specifically about kind of the the dark side of the dream and the, the failure of the dream when, when the dream doesn't work out at all. And this woman, you know, tries to, or murders her, does try, does murder her husband. Yeah in some very misguided attempt to have a new love relationship, which, you know, it's it's kind of incredible that mm. she thought that was going to work out for her. Um, an idea that she got from watching Double Indemnity. Right. I haven't seen that in a while, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't work out. No. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was thinking talking about people like Georgia O'Keeffe and Joan Didion, Joan Didion was a person like that for me. And I did have to just discover her on my own. I I don't know. You know, she's a pretty popular 
figure, you know, public figure, even for for young women. Like on Instagram, they'll post a picture of, of Joan Didion and, you know. But have they read anything? <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Like yeah. I didn't see a picture of her and there was not a picture of her in the volume that I found on my mother's bookshelf. It was just slouching towards Bethlehem and I mm-hmm. recognized it because I had studied Yeats. I took a whole course in Yeats and so I knew him pretty well and was and really liked him a lot. And so it was just all about it was all about the language. I can't remember when I must have seen my first photograph of her. I don't remember. That's funny because I had the, you know, I would see her on campus sometimes at at Westlake. So I always had a visual, but it didn't back then, you know. Now it's become so commodified, right? You know, with the the Celine picture and the when she did that advertisement with the sunglasses and such. But back then it was... You're just also just not cognizant of those kinds of status things. At least I wasn't when I was that age. It wasn't until I got older that I understood, you know, what it meant where I grew up, what it meant going to that school with those people, having that great education. Um, Well, it's funny because in high school, like my ultimate glamour figure was Edie Sedgwick. Yeah. And what a mess yes. she was. Yes. And she was nothing but beautiful and glamorous and just a, a really tragic figure. Yeah. And I f- there was, for some reason, I was rereading that book, Edie, and I could not believe that I interpreted just glamour and she's my idol somehow yeah from from that story yeah I liked Edie too I also liked Deborah Harry uh-huh well I also loved Patty Smith but that was yeah. that was a bit later yeah that was a bit later yeah me too when I started appreciating substance yeah and I think Patty, I'm pretty sure I also discovered her through her writing. I really came to love her through a book. Someone gave me her book of poems, Babel, and I just was blown away because I was studying poetry mm-hmm. in college. I was writing poetry. Well, it's great that we, you know, discovered these figures who inspired us so much and I think hopefully not hopefully I'm certain that this collection it doesn't um, it doesn't puncture the myth of Joan Didion but it it really illuminates her as a woman and as a writer who is so much more than these images and hashtag whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and just a, 
an astounding body of work and that's always changing you know whether it be the subject or the point of view I feel like the style stays the same that kind of muscular detail-oriented meandering even there's an evenness of tone yeah 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 Definitely. A very a deliberate. Yeah, I was listening to something and she was, or maybe I read it, I don't know what it was, but she said she used to type Hemingway paragraphs mm-hmm. to kind of, and then Brett Easton Ellis said he used to write Didion, Didion. paragraphs mm-hmm. to kind of get the rhythm. It would have been fun to have him as a contributor yeah yeah well it's funny because he just wrote this new he has an essay collection called white out and all the reviews i was like has anybody made the connection between white and the white album <laughs> and i haven't really seen that but maybe it was there maybe if i did a deeper okay google I well i think i think his positions in that collection are very un-PC and Mm -hmm. so I was pretty turned off by that title I mean I would assume that there's a a nod a a, a nod exactly yeah and Didion I don't I mean I guess you can't call something the white album and not refer to race (laughs) in any way at all yeah but I think it really, it was mostly the Beatles reference. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And that was such a different time, the way we talk about identity and and all that stuff. It's so confusing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Identity politics, you mean? Yes. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Stacy, for chatting with me today. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. And people listening, please order Slouching Towards Los Angeles from your favorite online indie bookseller or even better, walk into a bookstore and pick it up. I know that in Los Angeles it will be for sure at Chevalier's, Vroman's, and Skylight. So thanks again.